and now I don't. And so I kind of thought like I'd be able to sort of scooch and like walk up and and get some other things taken care of. And it was remarkable. Like everyone started clapping. From the University of Alabama's Colorado's College of Business, it's Bama Means Business, a podcast that reveals amazing stories from those people who both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens, and on the show today, Professor Chris Whaley. This is the second episode to our two-part series, in which Dr. Whaley talks about his own advice for both life and finance as a career. And I know you touched on this before, but your own passion as a professor obviously your phd was in something specific what was it again uh so my phd is actually in economics and okay. so but my all my research was in risk and understanding risk theory and so which lends itself to finance yeah and what are you currently up to with your time outside of the classroom obviously you instruct classes you, you mm-hmm. teach classes but what else are you doing when it comes to research or involvement in you know education as a whole yeah, and so, you know, uh, part of our responsibility as faculty members is to to engage in research, um, you know, with the, the number of students I have that can become problematic sometimes. But uh, so, you know, there are a couple of research projects that I'm working on right now. Um, you know, like I said, my, my background is is in risk and and maybe you might even say risk theory. Um, and so there's a few projects that are in the work. One, uh, I'm actually working with some undergraduate students on, which is looking at how um, uh, these things called Morningstar ratings. Morningstar is a, a company that offers financial data, financial analytics. Uh, one of its one of the most important functions that you hear with related to Morningstar is their rating system. They rate mutual funds in terms of investability, right? So they have a five-star scale, right? Going from one to five. And they rate really any mutual fund that they can get data on. And so, and the idea is that five-star mutual fund, that's a really good mutual fund. So you should invest in it. One-star mutual fund, probably not a good investment. And so it's just a way for you know, the the casual investor to to see and, and look at how these mutual funds operate. So we're working on a research project right now that takes data on when a particular mutual fund has a star rating shift. So if it is four stars and it goes up to five stars, well, what happens to that fund? Well, naturally, you would think going from four to five stars, you would see more money come into that fund, and that indeed occurs. And there's previous research that shows that that's the case. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, is there any fundamental change within the management of that fund when there's a rating shift? Mm -hmm. So let's say you go from four to five stars. You're that fund manager, right? You're thinking, okay, I'm going to expect a big inflow of cash because investors are going to be flocking my way. Man, like, am I going to try to do things differently to maintain that five-star rating? Because literally next month, I could get demoted down to four stars, in which people would leave at that point. So we're trying to look at that sort of behavioral component, maybe is the best way to say it. Is, is there any impact on the risk, the riskiness of the mutual fund associated with any kind of change in that star rating? And so, uh, so we're currently working on that right now. Uh, it's a lot of 
lot of data scrubbing. <laughs> so there's, I think there's something like 25,000 mutual funds in the set over a 30 year period. It's monthly data. So it's a lot of, a lot of scrubbing to see if we can find the right, the right funds to include in, but, but yeah. And do you have your eyes on any other uh, area of interest by any chance after this project? I know obviously teaching a healthcare analytics class, which mm-hmm. healthcare analytics, healthcare economics. Sure. Yeah. And that is a very, I would say applicable field right now. And there's a lot of discussion going on around that, especially with the current state of the United States, mm-hmm. the healthcare system as a whole. Do you see yourself maybe pursuing more research in that area or at least be more observant of it in the future? Yeah, no, it, it is something that I've tried over the years and have had papers in the past that have focused on healthcare. Um, one that has been in the works for a while now is the, the healthcare class is a really unique class to teach. And it, I I talk about this sometimes in the finance classes as well. Is that, you know, that we we have ways to treat risk in finance from a, a like portfolio perspective and asset perspective, and there are models that help us understand how people respond and act in different levels of risk. But healthcare, kind of like some avenues of finance, is really interesting because. When you have risk associated with healthcare, specifically that idiosyncratic individual risk to your to your own health status, a lot of the models that try to say, oh, this person's risk averse or this person's risk loving, a lot of those get thrown out the window because it's your health, right? It's something that, you know, is a resource you're going to carry with you your entire life. You take it very seriously. And so uh, so it has some really unique aspects when you think about the risk perspective. So uh, I've done some research and have continued this and need to update it. And hopefully the <laughs> teaching this class will give me the motivation to do it that tries to say, all right, well, we know that um, if there's previous literature in economics and in healthcare that says, okay, if if I go to the doctor one more time this year, like what happens to my overall level of health? Mm. So we, w- we would consider this, um, if I have a one unit increase in my medical care consumption, right? To be very bland about it. What happens to overall level of health? Well, typically in the United States, nothing, right? Uh, there's They call it flat of the curve medicine, right? There's not really a big marginal impact for incremental health consumption, healthcare consumption in the U.S. And, and that, that's, a, that's a pretty tried and true statement. But what I'm interested in is, well, I may not necessarily be that much healthier on average when I go to the doctor one more time. But there might be certain aspects of my distribution of health that are affected, right? So if I go to the doctor one more time and the doctor says, hey, uh, Chris, you're as, you're as healthy as a horse, like no problems whatsoever. Let me run this test just to make sure there's nothing wrong. And he detects that I have some you know, level of cancer or some blood, blood test that tells me that I have cancer, like that's great, right? I mean, like he caught that early on, right? And now it's very treatable. So it's the idea that you may have an average level of health, but you also have a distribution of health. There are things that could happen to you that are outside your control that could lead to great health outcomes or bad health outcomes. So what is it about medical care that impacts that distribution? So the early part of this research, the sort of tentative results show that when people have access to more doctors, let's say, and I think the variable is something like doctors, one doctor per every 10,000 in the population or something like that. I forget the exact results. There's not necessarily a change in the mean or the average level of health, but there's a decrease in the variance. Mm-hmm. 
meaning there's a decrease in the risk or the standard deviation, right? The uncertainty associated with health goes down. And that's something that's very valuable for people, right? If there's less uncertainty for health, you're much more informed. You can make better decisions. And that's not something that's captured with a lot of the current research in terms of how to quantify the value of healthcare, right? Because that's what you're ultimately concerned about is what kind of value you get for going to the doctor or, uh, you know, having this treatment or whatever it might be. And so, um, so I would love for that research to open back up again, just a matter of motivation, I guess. And so. That's, I think, a very interesting field as a whole, just mm -hmm. because not many people think about it all too much. Obviously you go to the doctor, you, you have insurance, everything works out, copay, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the risk models behind it determine everything that goes on. Like, how many times can you see a doctor a year, for example, like you were talking about? That's all determined by the risk that your insurance is playing yep. with someone that has your that's profile. exactly right, yeah. So I think having my own experience with that and seeing all those things, I think a lot more people are going to be at least aware of it in the future. Sure. Especially now with everything going on, people are going to be, I think, say more cognizant as a whole. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't meant to be now a mean question at all, but <laughs> sort of an open-ended question. Nonetheless. Academics have really thick skin, so okay, mean I'm questions sure are welcome. Throw it on, start flaming a little bit. <laughs> why finance? Like, why should I care about finance? Because you got firms in New York City, you got firms in all these cities, but it doesn't affect me on a daily basis. Why should I care about it? Uh yeah, no, that is a good question. I think fundamentally, whether you find it interesting or not. It's part of your life, right? I mean, any developed economy like we're in, especially something as highly complex as, as the, the U.S. economy, finance is going to be part of your daily, monthly, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly life, right? I mean, it's – and it's also one of those two where you'll be presented lots of opportunities in your life to make financial decisions, whether that is – Something like applying for a mortgage, for a home, opening up a bank account, opening up a retirement account, making specific investments. And these are all obviously personal finance uh, topics and ideas, but you know, you will experience and be a part of finance as a discipline, financial markets as an institution – your entire life, whether you are actively or actively participating or even totally unaware, like you're going to be there. So it makes sense to know at least a little bit about it. And I think one thing that is really helpful, especially the way that we do it here at Alabama, is that I don't want you coming out of Finance 302 with being some sort of cutting edge financial engineering, you know, savant who is going to build the next financial derivative or whatever it might be. Like that's, that's not the point. The point is let's, let's teach you the basics. And the basics are relatively straightforward, right? I mean, it's not, we're not doing terribly complicated stuff in that class, but it also, once you understand the basics, you can handle it in your everyday life. You can understand that, okay, why is it that I'm making the same mortgage payment every month? You know, what happens if I increase that payment by a small amount? Or what, what is it? Do I need to do a five-year loan on this car or a three-year loan or a 15-year loan on my house or a 30-year loan? You know, how long should I take to pay back my student debt? You know, I mean, like these are all questions that you can't answer. But also at the same time, when you 
are wildly successful after you've graduated from here and you're doing very well in life, people will come to you and say, hey, here's an investment opportunity. And you'll at least know the basic nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, if you look at something and it's wildly complex and it doesn't make sense within the very basic fundamental framework of finance, it's probably too good to be true, right? It probably is not what it appears to be. And so, so it's just sort of a basic level of understanding and access and ability to navigate financial decisions that I think are really important and that regardless of whatever you do, you're going to face it, right? It isn't an inevitability, right? And so death, taxes, and finance, right? That, that, that's the <laughs> new mantra. And so, so, yeah, I just think it's good, good knowledge to have. And I know a lot of students will come to you at least after class and ask you a, a question regarding their own career, trying to get mm -hmm. their own personal advice. Could you give me, the audience, a little bit of advice when it comes to your own experiences, when it comes to working in finance specifically? Is there any specific skill that you should be aware of? Is there any specific skill set that you're maybe looking for to be successful in the area of finance if that's a career prospect for you? Yeah. Um you know, I, I would imagine you can use these for more fields than just finance. But I mean, in my personal experience, and I tell this to students quite a bit, obviously be confident in your ability, right? I mean, you know, if you're if you're going into an interview, like they at least like you somewhat, right? You're there talking to them. And so, so be confident in that, but demonstrate in everything that you do and say that you can quickly learn and you're a hard worker, right? I mean, if in your finance, the faster you can pick something up and the, 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 the strength of your work ethic, I mean, those will take you all the way to the top. And so, you know, I, people, when, when I first interviewed with these investment banks, I felt like I needed to prove myself and sort of say like, hey, here's what I can do and what I can bring to your company. And, you know, I mean, hindsight, I think, gosh, that was such an egotistical thing to say, right? I, this lowly, you know, master's student has come to this investment bank that's been around for 100 plus years and makes billions of dollars every year. I'm telling them I can give them something they don't already have, right? So it's, exactly. it's sort of the, you know, be confident in the abilities and skills that you have, but in everything, show that you can pick things up quickly and that you can work hard. And so, I mean, if I have a hard worker who's intelligent, I'm, I'm happy as a, as a manager, right? And so, and looking back at your own experience, what one piece of advice would you give to your 18, 22 year old self that's in college going through the motions that you might not have known at the time? Uh, maybe invest in Apple or Netflix <laughs> or Amazon, um, I think uh, I think if I was going to give myself advice back then, I, I think it would be, you know, try to create some some goals, right? Like write some goals down. I know that sounds really sort of abstract or maybe even really basic, and so, but it it's really important. I mean, when when you're young and you're in college, there is that sense of sort of like, I want to experience, I want to learn, I want to get a little bit here, get a little bit, I want to sample the buffet of, of the university experience. And, and I think that's good. I think there's some necessity to that, to college these days, maybe, maybe too much, but um, I would sort of say, try to 
put some goals down. Like there's there's some great writing exercises that, and lots of people do this, where basically they say, you know, try to write out where you see yourself, you know, three, five years from now. And it's a very basic sort of stream of consciousness, sort of writing assignment, but then go in and try to parse that out and edit it down, come up with achievable goals that you can do over the next three to five years. And I think it just gives you a lot more focus, even even if they're not career oriented, right? Or even if they are very general in terms of what your career is, it at least gives you an aim and a focus to, to shoot for these things, right? I mean, I don't want to say that I wasn't focused when I was an undergrad. I mean, there's probably a couple semesters in there where I wasn't. And so, but one thing that was really helpful for me is that graduate school gave me a a definitive aim. And then I sort of was able to parlay that into a definitive job. And so, you know, I, I felt like I was fortunate to have that happen, as opposed to having to an aim that I had thought about and gave structure to beforehand. So I think doing something like that, as 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 weird or abstract or as basic as it sounds, can be helpful just to sort of give you that focus and clarity on where you want to be. Now, taking that and applying to right now in your own life right now, do you have any goals for yourself? Five to 10 years out, maybe? Anything you want to achieve? I mean, you already have a PhD. You're Especially here at <laughs> University of Alabama, like what more can popular. you do? In life? <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, professionally, I, uh, there, there's always that need to to hone your craft, and and you know, I I like to change the my courses a little bit every year, and so um, and that's sort of a an ongoing goal, I guess. And I think that's one of those where most academics have sort of realized that they're going to be lifetime learners, right? They that's why they chose this profession, and so so I think that's one sort of byproduct of that. But you know, I think personally for me, um, you know, I I have a young family, so I think that's where a lot of my sort of goals and focus are: raising my boys right, making sure they're set on a good path, and understanding good values, and so. Uh, and then professionally, it'd be nice to get some of those papers that we talked about <laughs> buttoned up and out into the the publishing world. And so, so yeah. And going back as well, talking about life right now, what's one thing that brings you happiness? Uh, gosh, there's, there's a lot of things, you know, I think I would say ultimately, you know, the happiness question is a tricky one, right? Because it, it's obviously very subjective. And so I think I derive a lot of happiness from responsibility, right? Uh, the, or maybe happiness isn't the right word. Maybe meaning uh, is, is maybe a more appropriate appropriate goal to shoot for, but uh, from responsibility. And so, you know, I, my family obviously brings me a tremendous amount of of happiness and meaning. My, my faith and connection with my church uh, obviously brings me ultimate sort of meaning. And so, and I think professionally, being able to connect with students is is great. I mean, that's, that's probably one of the best part of the job. And so, uh, it can be daunting with the number of students that I have. And so, but it's nice when students seek that out. It's nice to do podcasts and things like that because it is a very rewarding process. Um, you know, and it sort of relates back to the point that you or the question you had asked earlier about students and and would it be okay if they came by and asked about your discipline? Like that's that's one of the best parts, right? And so, and I think being able to 
I think if I had hone in specifically in the academic setting about what brings meaning, being able to see the the light switch turn on when it comes to complex financial topics, basic issues of time value of money, financial assets, risk, any of that stuff. It's such a rewarding experience to see that in students where they really get it. And especially when they can relate it to the real world. I mean, that that's that's probably the the like I said, the best part of of our jobs is to be able to bridge that connection because you're gonna remember that. You're gonna use that throughout your your career. So it's uh it's very meaningful and it does also create a good amount of of happiness. And so so yeah. Your time here at Alabama is, I would say, just starting. Obviously, you've been working mm-hmm. here for five, six years. You're really starting to create a name for yourself. A lot of students know you. They've been through at least one of your classes <laughs> for better, in for the business yeah. school. What's one memory that's always going to stick with you for the rest of your life in regards to Alabama? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so it, two years ago, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, it was Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a very treatable form of cancer. And so, uh, but it was also, I mean, sort of upset the apple cart. It was one of those things that kind of disrupts your life. And uh, and the department was very great and provided me with resources as I went through treatment to, to be able to stay and continue to teach my classes and do that. And, you know, I never really said anything to the students, right? I, I, I forgot who... Someone in our department told me this at one point. Uh, they said that I I wore masks before masks were cool, right? So you know you you do these chemotherapy treatments that hurts your immune system, so you have to wear these surgical masks. So I was doing that two years ago before before COVID brought them into style, and so so I'd wear that mask to class, but I never really said anything, right? It, it wasn't really it didn't really seem appropriate to tell the students that. And I was given an exam, and uh, it was. I think it was, I guess it was that morning I had had a scan after doing my course of chemotherapy and everything was clean. Everything was clear. And I've been cancer free since. And so I, thank you. So I give my exam that night and I'm I'm passing out the exam and I'm giving everybody instructions and I'm about to say like, good luck, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I stop and I was like, man, like I should really tell them. So I say, hey, the last time I saw y'all, I had cancer and now I don't. And so I kind of thought like I'd be able to sort of scooch and like walk up and and get some other things taken care of. And it was remarkable. Like everyone started clapping. And so, and I mean, of course, like they should, right? It's a great thing to celebrate, but it was really fun. And then I feel like after that, like multiple students came up to me, like after the exam and sending me emails, and it was such a nice experience, right? Because I mean, obviously like it's a big thing and it's, it's great to be able to overcome something like that, but it was nice that students cared, I guess. And so, and showed that, and it gives you a sense of that sort of community or that experience that you get here at Alabama, that people really come for right and so so it's nice to get a little little taste of that but yeah no really really good memory and so uh, and I, I got to do it again and because i was given two exams so i had to go in the next room and I did the same thing over again it was the same result so it's nice it's good but double up on that and so so yeah, yeah but uh that's an amazing story and honestly yeah. very happy to hear that you're doing well health yeah yeah no it's good that's do good you think that's inspired any of your own personal work more in regards to healthcare economics personally uh you know i think one thing that it's helped me realize, and and I knew this before, but 
Healthcare is really complex. I mean, I shouldn't say just healthcare, but healthcare is really complex. And almost everything that deals with people is just wildly complex. And so, you know, I mean, when going through the the cancer treatments, it was one of those where, you know, I mean, there is some amount of nuance that goes into every single case and every single person responds differently and how that's treated is differently in different areas. And so it it helped me realize that people are incredibly complex in, in you know, especially in economics and finance. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that this is sort of the same across other disciplines as well. We tend to boil people down to this little utility maximizing agent who is, you know, making these budget allocations to maximize their their utility. And so, you know, and and even in finance, when we think about people who are risk averse and, you know, they they like to decrease variance or decrease the energy. I mean, these terms just don't capture the complexity of not only the individual, but how they interact with other people, how they interact with professionals, how decisions like their health impact, how they interact, all these things. So it's just, it's incredibly complex, not to say that you can't make assumptions and you can't model people, but realize that when you do that, you're smoothing all that away. And it's important to realize that, not from a standpoint of the the results are not meaningful anymore, but you always have to interpret that result with the context that people can, as I say in class, sometimes act irrationally. And so <laughs> most of the time they act rational, and that's great. But sometimes that may not be the case. That is Dr. Whaley, economics and finance professor here at the Culverhouse College of Business. And thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you're not a subscriber, do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culverhouse College of Business and what it has to offer. And as always, roll tide.